because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. On this week's episode, I'm interviewing an up-and-coming economics and environmental commentator. And as I learned during the interview, which I recorded last week, he is actually a former climate activist who makes him that much more interesting because these days he's writing some of the best stuff on the web about energy and environment, including uh, a lot of good content on fossil fuels. I read an article of his a month or two ago challenging the idea that nature is like Bambi. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think in that one or some of his other articles, he quoted me and I learned that he was influenced by the moral case for fossil fuels, along with a lot of other pro-human free market, uh, different kinds of writings. And so I wanted to bring him on to introduce you to him and also to see what we can learn about his development. Because if we have a climate activist who's now a champion, of human flourishing and progress and low-cost reliable energy. That's something really cool that I would like to replicate uh, uh, in the future. So uh, his, his name is Joachim Book. He's from Sweden and he has a really interesting story. So I'll be joined by Joachim Book, probably butchering his name. Sorry about that. It's spelled like Joachim, but it's the Swedish version. I'll be joined by uh, Mr. Book on the other side. Joachim Book, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, great to have you. So I, I learned about you a couple months ago. You had this really interesting article on the Bambi syndrome. And so I want to ask about that, but I want to go back to just how what's what's the beginning of your journey? I mean, right now you look like you're an up-and-coming public intellectual who's pro-liberty. You're writing about a bunch of different liberty-related topics. How did you get started in the world of liberty? Um, the world of liberty, liberty is very much, I mean, I think it was a reaction to my environmentalism, uh, which goes even further back, right? Um, so liberty itself, I'm pretty sure that one was, um, I always try to find this, the, this line in his book, but I can't find it. Johan Neuwberg, a Swedish um, libertarian, um, he recently wrote a book called Open, the, the Star of Human Progress. Um, he has a book on migration. I remember reading that when I was about 19 or so. Um, and he had a line in there um, that was something like, me and my co-authors don't believe that government is the solution to all problems. Like it's very innocent, easy line, like nothing special at all. Um, and for some reason, this little line just clicked with me. And I just like, for the first time in my life, I realized, wow, maybe there's a problem in the world that doesn't have government as solution. Maybe like there are individual private uh, solutions to this, either through NGOs or through uh, through uh, through companies or private individuals. Uh, and it was such a such a foundational moment for me just to realize that tiny tiny little um, detail. Uh, and from then, it took years and years and years to sort of like unwind myself from the many beliefs that I already had. So that was probably the beginning of of, of thinking with liberty. What, what do you think it was about you that, because I'm sure many people read such a line and would have glossed over it. What, what do you think it was about you that, that made it just strike you? It's, it's very, it's very uh, surprising to me too. I don't, I don't, I don't really know. It, and and I, I really love that it was such an innocent line too. Like it wouldn't really jump out at anyone. Um, but I guess it was just the right time and the right moment. And then finally, like I knew that people I had argued with for years probably believed something like that, but I never quite understood it. I never quite considered it. And then 
in this little, it was a book on migration. So it wasn't at all about that. It was a book on open borders, um, uh, which I was very passionate about back then. And then I wasn't really prepared for this kind of like state versus market argument. Uh, so I think I had my defenses maybe down or something, um, which let me um, uh, actually consider the argument. Um, and once I did, I just started unraveling a bunch of things. Um, so you mentioned that, I think you said you were 19 or so when you, when you saw this. So what, so take us through just a summary of your journey since then. I mean, you've, you've now, at least you're writing a lot. I'm not, tell us just about your professional progression and where you are today, up to where you are today. Yeah, so um, I grew up in Sweden. I went to university in the UK um, and I've lived in a bunch of different countries in Costa Rica, in Australia, in, in, in Argentina. Um, and I've always loved to travel and I've always loved to write. And it wasn't until maybe two years ago that I figured out that I can like combine these two things and make them into a career. Um, um, back then we still called it digital nomad, but nobody wants to call it that anymore uh, for whatever reason. Um, so that's what I've been doing uh, for a while. And, but, but my, my environmentalism started way before that when I was younger, you know, even before I came of age. Um, and I attended all kinds of, you know, left-leaning and, and hyper-left um, um, organizations and events, um, attack. I was doing protests, um, all you kinds of- You were participating in protests? Yeah, absolutely. I was doing- What kind of protests? Oh, anything. Like if there was a protest around for whatever topic, I would be there. I would be chanting in the streets. It didn't much matter. It could be LGBT rights. It could be climate action. It could be- uh, I don't know, like we did protests against uh, uh, drugs. We did all kinds of things. Um, like it was something about the being an activist and being um, uh, like very fighting for something that really, mm -hmm. really appealed to me. And really, I, even, even before I was, I mean, I don't know, maybe I was 17, 18, we did all kinds of like political stuff. We were protesting and lobbying outside the parliament. We went to the European parliament in Brussels, met with uh, members of parliament there attended all kinds of events so I thought like I thought about these big big topics and I wanted to change the world from a very young age um, and I, I used to write even back then I found a couple of my my articles from back then and then they're not they're very passionate like I, I, I can see how where I am today where I ended up today is not entirely random and it was something that I could have done like it made sense given where I came from um, I wrote like letters to local newspapers and argumentative pieces about all kinds of things. Like um, I remember my local newspaper once um, uh, published an, um, um, a piece that I wrote about high school teacher evaluations um, and my high school teachers really didn't like it. Um, so this is the kind of stuff that I, I always did. Um, I think the height of my climate career was when I went to um, um, the UN climate conference in, in, in Durban in South Africa. And that would have been 2011, I think. Um, and we were ostensibly there to monitor the, uh, the negotiations and reports to our different um, countries and organizations and things. Uh, but most of the time we spent talking with other people, uh, confirming our biases, if you wish, um, about how bad the world was and climate justice and we were doing all kinds of protests, running down the streets of Durban, shouting slogans about how polluters should pay and how we need eco-justice in the world. Um, and yeah, that's definitely, that was definitely my life, you know, eight, 10 years ago. Were you getting paid for this? Like, how are you supporting no. yourself? 
uh, no, no, during no. this so period? At the time, at the time, I was doing um, um, an, a project management course. Um, like, if, uh, it, it's a it's a weird Swedish thing in between high school and university, a one year program, um, and it was sort of focused on NGO management. So it was encouraged to be involved in NGOs, um, which was the reason I did the course in the first place um, because I already had a lot of experience in the in the in the nonprofit world. Um, so yeah, no, um, I I do think I was. I had my flights paid to Durban by, let's see, um, the, the organization we went with was like a co collaboration of like World Council of Churches and then some other climate organization, I don't, I forget. Um, and like, looking back at it, it was such a wonderful, it's such a wonderfully iconic thing. Like we went all from all over the world, like we flew <laughs> using airplanes, right? Um, to Durban to complain about polluters in the world. And not once did it dawn on us that, you know, maybe we're part of the problem here. Maybe we're not really practicing what we preach, uh, you know? So I was gonna ask a broader question, which is, did it ever occur to you when you're doing this back in 2011, that like you might be wrong in some significant no. way? No, 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 no. You could we actually, were... like it was, you could be making the world worse, actually. No. Yeah, that never occurred. That 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 would no. That thought never happened. We were always convinced that we were on the right side of history, that we were helping everything. And it was like it was it wasn't even a discussion, right? It was never a question like maybe this is not a good idea. If anybody ever raised that point in our conferences or whatever, um, they were basically ostracized very quickly, or at least did, like did so anyone did anyone raise it? Uh, probably. Like I went to a lot of conferences with hundreds of people in like the the, the green movement, uh, politically or some other like non-political um, organizations, uh, and I'm sure people ask questions like that sometimes with with lectures and something. Uh, but we always like I remember the feeling being like, oh my god, it's some odd person not really understanding what we're doing here. What? How did they get in here? You know, um, there, it was never really a conversation or a or a you know. A friendly debate or a, a serious dispute like maybe hang on a second maybe could we be wrong here no that never occurred to us why, why do you think that is that it it never occurred to you and the others i i really really don't know i've been thinking about this for a lot like i know michael has his uh, religion uh, speech at least like the chapter in um in apocalypse never where he talks about this being a religious sort of revival um I don't have any other way to explain it. It was just, it was just so profound, emotionally based tribalism, being part of the same uh, culture, believing the same things, and it was just like a matter of course. The fact that you were there meant that you had opted in. That meant that you believed. That meant that you were part of of, of us. You know. Um, so no, I don't think we ever thought about that. Okay, so that that raises uh, lots of stuff. But so. Let's, since we're on this topic of environmentalism in general, and then what I would call climate catastrophism in particular, what, like, what changed? Because I, you know, obviously I didn't know that you were this protester. I like, I see you writing this thing on the Bambi syndrome, talking about how, you know, how we shouldn't be terrified of this stuff and how nature doesn't give us a safe climate, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what was, yeah, how did your views go about changing? So I, I started studying economics, that's the short question, uh, but it wasn't quite doing an economics program at a university. Plenty of people come out of, 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 of universities believing the things that I believe coming in. Um, 
So it was, it was more adopting an, an economic mindset. You know, it was embracing uh, the ideas of trade-offs and asking, you know, these annoying economist questions like, well, okay, compared to what, what's the benefit here? What are we getting in exchange for the damage that we're doing? Um, and quickly, when you do these things, you, 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 um, um, you realize something that I think I heard you say on a show not too long ago, like you realize two things. First, that the world is amazingly, it, the world is just amazing. And it's so, so much better than it was 200 years ago. Um, and you also, secondly, need to learn that it happened so, so quickly, like just a couple of generations ago, like three, four, five generations ago, my ancestors were dirt poor farmers in the backwaters of Europe. Like there were, there were, there were um, conferences, not conferences, there were events held in London to send food to the poor Swedes, you know, the starving children of Sweden, three, four, five generations ago. Uh, it happens so quickly. And right away, what you have to sort of do then, that leads you to, to, um, to study economic history, to study growth, to study the industrial revolution and how we could even escape this Malthusian trap. And essentially that's what I was doing um, at the same time that I've been reading you on Nilbai and, uh, starting to reconsider my, my many of my priors and it wasn't an instantaneous thing it was like a very very slow gradual um peeling away at things that i used to believe and then figuring out that wait this doesn't make any sense and how about that and what about that and you know like i think i think i read atlas shrug at, the, at this stage at some point as well and that had some kind of effect on me um what if you get to all these like questions like well how how if we don't have a government to do everything then how are we supposed to have primary education and it turns out in history we did and in poor countries of the world today we do um so that wasn't like a, a, a given a natural something that we had to do had to have a government do for us um and they kept just peeling away at those kinds of things what about healthcare? what about roads you know what about this what about that um and for a very long time, I couldn't answer it. You know, it's like, well, I guess government has to do some things, that thing and this thing and that thing. Um, and over a couple of years, I think it maybe took two or three years while I was studying economics and while I was reading all this stuff, um, I slowly, slowly started to adopt a more comprehensive mindset of, of, of liberty and a, a, a more, I don't know, I don't want to call it anti-government, but more like a, a pro-market solution, if you wish, like a human flourishing uh, solution, if you wish, um, that, you know, we didn't need governments to fix those things. Like, you know, this little line from Yuan Nobai's uh, book that we don't need governments to fix all the solutions, to provide the solutions to all the ills that we, that we can imagine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, because if you just think about 200 years ago, the problem wasn't that they didn't have a lot of government control over their lives. No, right. No, they had much more uh, immediate concerns, right? Of course, governments in the past have not been particularly friendly. And if we would, you know, compare our governments to them, then they, then ours might not come out so badly, all things considered. Um, but still, like they had more, you know, immediate concerns of survival and fighting the elements. And, right. You know. but it, I mean, if you just look at, you know, 200 years ago or something and you think, okay, before you've had this incredible productive progress. It's like completely implausible to think, or you know, 300 years ago, like, oh, King George is going to master plan the industrial revolution, right? Like mm -hmm. there's zero chance. Like you look in retrospect and you see, well, of course, free individuals had to discover these things and they had to compete with one another and consumers had to just like, 
there's no way the history would have happened had there been like one central planner or one council of experts or something like that dictating everything. But once once it exists, like once it exists, it's more plausible to think, oh, let's just have Paul Krugman and his friends like control the whole system. But the my point was just that if you look several hundred years ago, I mean, there were all kinds of dictators who thought they were wise and had their own experts, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the thing that led to productivity and progress was liberating the minds and, and lives of all the individuals. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, I, I was very, I was very influenced by Deidre McCloskey in this. And I, that was some of the books that I read early on in my like deep rabbit dive, uh, deep dive into the rabbit hole of economic history. Um, and uh, her explanation of, 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 of why we grew rich and this like sociological idea change and revolution in ideas and how we looked at, at, at entrepreneurs and how people who made money in the markets were no longer immoral, uh, uh, but they were providing some kind of like basic necessity for other people. And that was not frowned upon anymore. It wasn't disgusting. It wasn't something to, uh, uh, to look down on. Um, I... So you mentioned how just economic thinking, thinking about trade-offs uh, helped you with kind of every issue. What else? So how did you, what else happened in terms of, of climate, including, I'm of course curious where moral case for fossil fuels came in, but I, I wanna know the whole story of how you went from this climate catastrophe crusader to the present. Um, yeah, I, I think I had an, uh, maybe I had a couple of years of interlude where I didn't pay that much attention to it. Like after I started peeling away at my, my, my prior beliefs and not really considering why I had them in the first place, um, I got interested in a lot of different things. Like I mentioned economic history. I did a lot of financial history, looking at how banks operated in the past and how financial markets um, operated in the past. Um, so I kind of like left the, the, the environmental case and activism and things that I've been very interested in behind me. And I didn't really look at that too much. Um, and then maybe a, a, what? So maybe two years ago or so, um, um, no, actually, wait, hang on. So, and I, and when I was at university, I was still involved in some of these like climate um, um, campaigns. For instance, we had a, a massive divestment campaign at my undergrad university. Um, and I was part of that one. And I remember feeling very, very torn. Like the people who were there, I was there because I was interested in looking at financial markets and investigating. I was the numbers guy, essentially. Um, figuring out what our university owned and how. And it was like this interesting detective job going through everything um, and figuring out how much that was worth and how much money they made from fossil fuel companies and that kind of thing. Um, but I was very torn with the people I was there with because um, they weren't really there. I mean, they had all these environmentalist talking points that I used to say as well, um, but they weren't really there to save the planet. They were there to destroy capitalism. They were there to point out that capitalism and liberty was evil. Uh, and this was just another, you know, an, another weapon in their arsenal. This was just the, the latest thing to fight over. Um, so I never, I never really got the, the impression that most of the people in my divestment campaigns were in it for environmental reasons. They were massive lefties, massive um, um, uh, socialists, and they wanted to destroy the capitalist system and they found a, a good reason. Like, I think Naomi Klein inspired a lot of them. She had a book right, called This Changes Everything, where she just finds out that climate change is the perfect, the perfect thing to whack the capitalist system with. Um, that was very much how my, my classmates were operating at the time. Um, 
So I was, I was, I was doing that for a while. Um, and we were doing, um, I said, oh, what's the guy? Um, um, the guy who ran 350.org. Um, McKibben. Yes, he came to lecture for us and that kind of thing. Um, and so we organized all these events. And I remember I was so furious with him for saying like all these um, crazy things uh, and like spurring on the divestment campaign. And at the time I'd realized that, you know, 90% of the oil oil extracted was owned by, you know, foreign, um, not on, on, on Western stock exchanges, but, you know, Iranian or Russian or Saudi Arabian. So already at that time, I started thinking that, you know, well, even if we divest and even if we get everyone to divest from Exxon and Chevron or whatever, um, that's not going to do anything, right? Like somebody else is going to buy those shares, right? Because that's how financial markets work. And besides, uh, most of the oil extraction is owned by, um, by companies that we can't control by investor activism. Uh, so even those questions, they wouldn't really, they wouldn't really answer and, and, and nobody really engaged with those questions. So there was like this thinking one step further that was completely missing. And that I thought like an economics degree or an economics education really, really helped me with. Um, just like, okay, what happens then? And what happens after that? What happens after that? And what's the, the full outcome? And I didn't really see that thinking with most of my campaign friends. Um, so I think at some point there, I just like withdrew from those activism. And I was, I, I didn't have a, a clearly formulated reason for why I didn't, didn't appreciate their work as much as I used to. It was more like, well, this doesn't fit. They're not really, uh, they're not really engaged in, in, they can't really answer the questions that I have. That doesn't mean they're wrong or I'm right. It just means that there's something missing here. There's something, there's a part, piece of the puzzle that's not quite here yet. Um, and I remember just withdrawing and then focusing on other things for a couple of years while I was sort of figuring that out, if you wish. Um, and it wasn't until maybe two years ago that I got seriously interested in environmentalism again uh, from a much more like pro-market um, uh, perspective and realizing how, um, reading a bunch of things and realizing how people in markets can actually like deal with environmental questions. And a lot of these environmental stuff, I think that's what fueled my, my, my interest um, to begin with, that a lot of these environmentalist claims were so disproportionate. They were so out of line, like they couldn't possibly be true. You know, like we're not gonna die in 12 years or seven years or whatever the, the latest number is. Um, and I found this, this so, so, so I kept reading the things that, um, what did you call them? Hysteria, um, climate hysteria. Oh, catastrophists I often Catastroph use. Sorry. Yeah, catastrophists. Like, so they kept referring to different scientists and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a university educated person. I can read the scientists. So I, I read the scientists and learned that they don't support at all what uh, the catastrophists were saying. And this even, this convinced me even more that there was something odd in this case. Like they weren't protesting genuinely concerned about the planet for the reasons that they were saying that there was something else going on because clearly this is not what the science is saying. It is raising some kinds of concerns and some some things about certain places, certain things that are happening and some stuff that we could uh, be concerned about, but not at all to the degree that um, that I kept seeing um, in the media and among protesters. Um, so I, I yeah, I, d I dug down into this and I kept writing and reading more about it. Uh, it really, really didn't make sense to me how um, how we just kept slamming this alarmist claims and everybody just takes it for granted, it seems. So how did how did you learn about moral case for fossil fuels? 
Uh, I think the first time, um, I believe you were on Tom Woods' show a few years ago. Um, I think it was after maybe you were um, on, um, um, you were giving a testimony for before the Congress, for, for Senate or something. Right, Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. Yes, that sounds about right. And I think you were on a podcast that I listened to a lot, an Austrian Economist podcast uh, run by Tom Woods. Um, and, you know, like when you listen to podcasts, you hear somebody, you know, plug their books and you're like, wow, interesting. So I went and read it um, and I really, really enjoyed it. And I was like, wow, you can make you can make a, a, a positive pro versus con case instead of like always play defensive when it comes to like markets. So my, I, I think, I don't remember exactly when this was, but at, at my station thinking at that point was basically, well, markets work roughly pretty well. We shouldn't intervene with them too much, but we should have a government fix things that they don't do very well, such as environment. And I remember reading a, a moral case for fossil fuels and thinking and, and, and hearing, wow, here's somebody who says, no, actually, there's a trade-off there too. <laughs> like, you know, just expand your logic a little bit further. Um, like maybe that's not so great. Maybe there is something good about fossil. Maybe that fossil fuels does something to us that we um, uh, that we did not. It was they weren't pure evils. You know, they weren't just the negative damage. They were they were doing something good as well. It's like oh okay yeah, and that 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 was like one of the final pieces of the puzzle that just clicked for me. It's like yeah not too bad. So when did you start? Uh, I, I mentioned I encountered your Bambi syndrome article, which I liked. When did you start writing about this stuff? Um, I think maybe earlier this year or maybe last year. Um, I have a couple of articles from last year when I'm um, complaining about Extinction Rebellion and, um, uh, and other like catastrophists. Uh, I remember writing an article, at least for Mises.org, saying that maybe maybe all these protesters should put their money where their mouth is instead, you know? And I was like describing how insurances could deal with a lot of the damages that come from fossil fuel fuels. Like if you really, really think that, you know, sea levels are gonna rise and this and that is gonna happen, um, then you can insure against that. And they have a massive movement. So I argued that, you know, they can put all this money together and they would have a, a big impact over the, the insurance and reinsurance uh, market. Um, so I was sort of like cheekily using, um, uh, financial markets as a as a solution for the problems that these people say that they do, and then um, came up a couple of times more I think last year, but it was it was definitely beginning this year that I I wrote oh no last fall last fall definitely I I I, I wrote something called the real reason um, um, everybody hates environmentalists or something like that, um, and I was um, I was That's pointing a good title out I haven't read that one yet. Yeah, maybe I got the title wrong. I don't know. It was something like that anyways. Um, and I was pointing to all these tiny little things that don't really make sense the way. So the discrepancies between action and, 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 and words, um, the very thing that I was lacking when I was a, a environmentalist. So I was, at, I was in Costa Rica at the time and there were a, a lot of people there doing all kinds of things. You know, they, I met a girl who had a, a bamboo toothbrush because she, she didn't want to use plastic. Plastic was really bad. I was like, okay, well, you can do your thing. Um, and then I, um, there were a bunch of those stories. Like she, she wouldn't use plastic. She didn't want to eat meat. She didn't want to do that. And I kept thinking like, girl, you're from Europe. You flew here. Whatever <laughs> you saved with bamboo toothbrushes and not having meat, you completely destroyed by coming here for five weeks. Like there's, there's not like, how does this not compute? You know, 
And there were so many instances like that. Um, I was living in a town called Montezuma in, in, in Costa Rica and they, they have a big like NGO that tries to, um, to raise turtles. Um, and I don't know exactly, the, I'm not a biologist, I don't know exactly how, how threatened the turtles are and how important turtles are for the ecosystem, but I imagine they're important. Um, so they were raising a bunch of turtles and they almost did it like a, a tourist attraction. They would release the turtles when they, um, they would gather them whenever they would, um, um, they would hatch and they would release them all together. So there was like a hundred turtles rushing towards the ocean, basically. It was very nice, very photogenic. Um, and they, they kept doing this entire season. Um, and I was like, yeah, that, that's important. And if you think about turtles and that's, that's good for the, for the environment, whatever. Um, and then a couple of things happened. Like there were a bunch of, of predators, for instance, like birds of prey and other things just swooped down and ate the turtles. They'd learned that, you know, the humans released turtles and you can just pick them up. Um, it's like, okay, that wasn't too great, right? Because these turtles aren't gonna, you know, go into the ecosystem. They're just gonna die and be eaten by birds of prey. Um, and most disturbingly, the, the, the NGO was mostly run by uh, volunteers from the US or from Europe. So again, they flew all the way over here to release a few turtles into the in um, into nature, which is great, but presumably you emitted more uh, methane and CO2 emissions coming over than you ever will help the environment by releasing turtles. So there was this sort of like incongruency, or it wouldn't really make sense. Your actions were not aligned with your um, with your words um, that I kept complaining about, and I've found that ever since. Like in in Greta Thunberg is a great example. Uh, a lot of people in Extension Rebellion. I did this too when I was an um, environmentalist. You know, I flew to Durban halfway around the world uh, to, 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 to protest about things. And it never really occurred to me that, um, uh, that I'm not practicing what I preach. I'm not doing what it is that I say, what it is that I say that everybody else should be doing. Um, so I've been writing a lot about that. And it really frustrates me, this sort of disconnect between um, what you say you believe and how you, how you act. Interesting. So, what are your what are your plans for, if any, for writing about these issues going forward? Um, yeah, I shouldn't I shouldn't pre-commit when I don't have a, a finished uh, thing. Um, I'm working on a book manuscript now called Everyone Is Wrong, um, and then I have a I have a chapter in there when I, that I try to discuss a lot of these climate issues, for instance. Um, and the case there is generally, you know, a lot of things that we don't think about and a lot of things that we take for granted. Um, are just when you investigate them, it turns out that they're not quite that way. Like economics is a perfect discipline for this because a lot of things are counterintuitive. You think, you know, you know, if we have tariffs, then we protect our, our industry, but you end up hurting your consumers more than you help your uh, your own industry, for instance. So that's a sort of like a, a counterintuitive result. Um, and there are a lot of those sort of results and there are a lot of these sort of topics um, in different fields. Um, so I wanna go through a couple of those things like um, psychology and um, another one, yeah, the replication crisis in psychology is, is, is a typical one that I've been focusing a lot recently. Um, there are so many famous results that we think are universal from the field of psychology that just won't replicate. When other scientists are trying to do the same thing, they just won't find the same results. Um, and when you do these big, bigger studies to find out, okay, which one of the results we have are uh, hold up, something like half of them 30% to 50% of them just don't hold up. Um, so there's like, like a lot of these stuff that I want to th think about. Very inspired by Brian Kaplan and his um, uh, myth of the rational voter, how it's not rational for us to hold, to be fully informed about a lot of things. Like it just doesn't make sense for me to know everything there is to know about um, um, certain topics. 
which means that I walk around in the world having erroneous beliefs and mistaken beliefs, and it doesn't really bite. So that's something I'm very interested in and I'm trying to write about right now. So uh, as an author who's missed some deadlines, I, I shouldn't ask this, but when is this book coming out? And do you have a publisher? <laughs> I don't, I don't have, no, I don't have a finished manuscript anymore. So I, I don't even have a finished manuscript yet. So we'll see. Um, it's something I'm working on. Um, and we'll see if, if and when. Um, All right, so um, final line of questioning I wanna bring up. So given your trajectory, I'm always interested in people who started in one way and then as, as, and end up in a different way. What lessons from your own experience can we learn in terms of how to bring more people from you know, the catastrophist side to what I would call the humanist side? Um, I like the line of questioning that I think you mentioned this in the Tom Woods episode when I first heard of you and your book, um, that you can ask about the standards, like what's important to you? What is the goal that you're trying to achieve? What is the standard by which you judge the world? Um, uh, and I think you've called it the human flourishing standard a lot, that you, you yeah. care about human, human survivability and humans um, um, having a better livability. Um, and when I ask, I've asked that question a lot to my environmentalist friends, and they usually come out saying that, well, no, I care about the pristine state of the planet. I don't want the planet, I want the planet to be untouched. Um, and, and right away, that solves so many problems, I think, in the conversations, because then you're, you're, okay, well, we're not talking about the same thing. We're not, like, every other argument that we will have will come back to this disagreement over what we think is important. Um, and so, it's like every, nothing else matters until we've solved that problem. It's like, do you think it's more important that we have an extra tree standing somewhere or that, you know, some human being has food for today? It's like, that's the kind of trade-off that we're sort of doing in a lot of places of the world. And if you think of a, think of this as any human flourishing standard, and obviously you should do whatever you can to, to make sure that humans have some food and can survive. Um, whereas if you're looking at the world as a pristine, perfect place, um, then you should never, you know, do anything to touch it. I think that's something that we can can learn. Ask so, that what, question. So in, those, so in those conversations, then are you able to make when, when you say, okay, this is the primary issue? Are you able to make progress at that point? Um, sometimes I think it's very hard, right? So I mentioned that up until this point, before I read this line in Yuan Nuba's book, I don't think anyone could have convinced me that I was wrong. You know, there was nothing anybody could have said that would have convinced me that I was on the wrong trajectory or I was on a harmful trajectory. We don't even have to make a moral judgment of whether or not it's good or bad. Um, but I was just not immune. I was completely immune to it. And I think that's um, like, you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. And I think the same thing applies here. You can't really, it, it's very hard to get through to somebody who's not willing to engage with um, the fundamental premise um, and I think that was what I was doing when I was younger. I ran around with the fundamental premise that an untouched world is um, a better world and humans are, you know, a harm on the planet and we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we should, ultimately we shouldn't be here. I never, I never put it that way and I never acted accordingly, but I think if we sort of analyzed what I was thinking that that would have been um, my standard. You know, the planet itself is, um, is supreme and the planet itself provides and the planet itself is, is almost sacred, if you want to speak in religious terms. Um, 
And before you get to a point where you are willing to engage with your premises, I don't really think we can. I'm not sure if we can, can do that. I most certainly wouldn't have been able to, like there was nothing anybody could say. Um, and if I was defeated in an argument then I couldn't, I couldn't um, um, uh, say anything or I couldn't counter the person I was, uh, I was arguing with, then I would just be emotionally frustrated and I would go back to my tribe of environmentalists and ask, well, they said this, what is the response to that? Almost like it was a game, you know, like I, we are clearly right. And I just, I just wasn't a good enough evangelizing person. I wasn't good enough in preaching the, uh, the gospel. So I had to go back to the superiors and, and, and find the, the better knowledge. There was never a thought in my head that maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe there's something off in my way of looking at the world that never occurred to me. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I had a couple of thoughts about this. So one is that from the beginning of this interview, it struck me how powerful the moral monopoly of climate catastrophism is, because you just think about the dynamic where, and I think you have this with any kind of cult or something like that, where it's just, if, if it's the only game in town, like if everybody is saying this is moral, and then there are some people who might be resisting saying, oh, it's too much, it's too extreme, but nobody's saying anything in the opposite direction, then why would you question that it's good? But what I, what I find in my own experience, for instance, if I go to a I've had this experience with debates a couple of times where I go and I debate something and, and especially if there are audience, a decent number of audience members there now, people, some people know who I am. So there will be some people who are clearly supportive of me and it totally changes the dynamic of the room because there's somebody there saying, Hey, wait, fossil fuels are good. And then there are people in the audience who seem to support that. And that just totally breaks the moral monopoly that the anti-fossil fuel movement has. And I'm a very, a lot of my view on activism and why I'm so eager to see just individuals like you starting to say the truth is it doesn't take that much to break a moral monopoly. Like you just hear from, you know, me and Schellenberger and Lomborg and you and others. And what you see is once you know that there's another view, so much of the, the dogmatism and, and the, the false confidence in the dogma goes away because you no longer have this easy path to sainthood. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that's really good. Like I, we used to think, even back in my environmentalist days, we used to think about that too. Like we would give up trying to reach the people who were too far away and they weren't worth our time. We would think about, I, I'm blanking on the, on, on the concept, but we would need like a, a big enough crowd of people, like something like five or 10% of the population. And that would be enough to push everybody else. That would be enough to like enact like a everything. critical mass. Critical mass, that's what we call it, a critical mass. Uh, and that's all we need to like get somewhere. Um, and I think the similar thing, like there might be a critical mass to counter the critical mass too. Like um, if you have enough people who say, well, maybe hang on a second, that's not, that's not right. Then you can counter even a big movement like Extinction Rebellion or other people like that. Because um, sort of like what I'm trying to get at with what I'm writing now, that a lot of people just want to live their lives. You know, a lot of people, I think about my mother a lot, like she doesn't have an ideological opinion. She doesn't have a, a position on this. She doesn't really like, she's more concerned about everyday life. She wants to like look after her house and work and, you know, cook. Like if somebody says, well, we have to, like we really, really, really have to save the planet. She's like, okay, we have to save. That's not a big concern for her. Um, so if somebody says it with enough conviction and enough seeming evidence then she will just accept it. But if at the same time, somebody else would say, well, hang on a second, that's not what we should do because this and this and that, um, 
I think her and people like her would be much more um, uh, prone to say, well, hang on a second. Yeah, I see that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a debate here. There's something unsettled here. It's not clear that we really need to go out of our way to save the planet. Maybe we should do something else. And yeah, maybe there are other things we should do. But like, I think most normal, if you wish, you know, people who spend their time doing more important things than ranting about the world, um, uh, can like, they're not stupid. They're clearly capable of making those decisions if they had to. Um, it's just that we need to present that, um, present that option, if you wish, or that, um, that counterpoint. One, one other thought I had as you're talking about the importance of the standard, this is based on my experiences, this, uh, this standard of, I'll sometimes call it unchanged nature, unimpacted nature. A lot of it, I think is, so from one perspective, you can say, oh, so a self-described environmentalist will just say, oh yeah, well, I believe in unimpacted nature and that's the end of it. But so much of why they believe that is what I call the delicate nurturer premise or the perfect planet premise. Like, and you even mentioned something about it's, I forget the word you use, but something about like it supports us. And, and it's this idea, you know, that, that the unimpacted planet is sufficient, safe, and stable, and that any human impact is just going to ruin that delicate nurture. Whereas mm. if you get the idea, there is no delicate nurture, there's just wild potential. And, you know, that's deficient, it's dangerous, and it's dynamic. Then you have the perspective, oh, human beings need to dramatically impact this thing. They need to do it intelligently, but they need to dramatically impact the planet for the better. And they need to do it continuously with a continuous supply of energy, powering all these machines that allow us to produce enough to, to flourish. Like, I find that the more you you bash the or, or attack the delicate nurture premise and make clear this is just bizarre. Like this is this is just like a, a no more logical than any like faith narrative. It's not scientific. Like once they get they get rid of that, then they don't have the same fear that oh our impact is just one you know like we're one oil well away from exploding the earth. And I, I just had this experience last week when I was speaking at a school. And one of the students, the student in the audience who is most questioning of my perspective, she found most helpful this idea of delicate nurture and just questioning that. And I could tell, oh, that made a difference for her to see, oh, this, to put it into words and to say, this doesn't make sense. So I'm curious what, what you think of like dislodging that as a way of, of dislodging this unchanged nature standard. Yeah, I think this was what pushed me into writing the, the Bambi article that mm, I, yeah. I had a saying something like nature is not nice, or maybe that was a subtitle. Um, this idea that just dispelled this idea that we live in a garden of Eden where we could just like relax and exist and be, and then everything will just be supplied for us. No, like nature is not a very nice friend, if you wish. Um, and every step of the way, like nature tries to kill us. I don't like, we don't have to put up this like nature versus man story, but it's Quite, quite clear, even you know, in the midst of a pandemic, like nature is trying every step of the way to kill us um, and harm us. Not necessarily, nature is not alive. It's not an acting being, it's just doing things. You know, it's like, I grew up in a country that's very cold and very dark and very inhospitable. And I moved to a country that's even worse. You know, it's like, it's quite clear to us, or it, it, at least it should be very clear. Like at least when I walk outside every single day, um, it should be clear that you know, without the help of machines and without the help of, of fossil fuels, or in this case, like nice thermal energy, um, like we would not be able to counter nature the way that we do. We live this fantastically comfortable lives because we can master nature, because we can overcome 
the perils of nature, um, the elements, the wind, uh, um, the cold, the temperatures. Like my my ancestors would not would not have believed something as silly as you know nature just provides. No, they had to work their um, their backs to pieces to just ache out a little piece of food from the from from the earth. And every mistake you made, every tiny like every winter was a challenge to survive. Like that's not like that's not nature doing nice things to you. And it's in in a world that's sort of flush with um, what's the line you use? Cheap available energy. Um, we're sort of, I think we sort of forget that, you know, like everything that we get, we just take it for granted. It's like, yeah, of course there is, you know, uh, pure running water in the, in, in the tap. Of course there's electricity for us to use. Of course there is, you know, fuel to just put in our cars and drive somewhere if we want. And we can always heat ourselves if we want to. Like all of these things are allowed. Look, like, we're allowed to do these things because we have a flourishing economy and we have access to particularly fossil fuels. Um, and we have access to all the energy of the world, you know, to do these things, to protect ourselves against nature. One of the earliest things that I wrote was, or I think something that clicked in me, I think it's from uh, 2017. Um, it's a very economist, economist take, economistic take, um, because everybody understands, or at least in economics, right, everybody understands the difference between nominal and real. If I get a 10% wage increase, but the prices of everything increases by 20%, for instance, I'm not better off. I'm worse off. Everybody gets that. And, but so we sort of had to, we can't just look at the price increase itself to see, or the wage increase itself to see if we are better off. We get more dollars, but they will buy us less things, fewer things. And I think about it in the same way when it comes to, to, to environment, like if the environment gets 10% worse, for whatever reason, climate change or uh, a very cold winter or something, but our abilities to counteract it gets 20% better. We have cheaper fuel, better houses, better insulation, better clothes, better cars, whatever. Uh, then we're not better. They're not. We, we're not worse off, even though the climate objectively is worse. We are better off, you know. So I, I tried to, to couple it with this like economic idea that we have to you um, discount the changes in, 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 in how nature operates by our ability to, to master it, essentially. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, it's way more than 10% versus 20%. <laughs> no, I mean, you just look at air. I was just thinking of this. I was in Austin earlier this year, just 105 degrees outside, and it's 70 or 75 inside. And you just think like this, you think about, I, I think a lot about India just because India is something like 9% of people have air conditioning. And it's just like who there wouldn't take, they would love two degrees increase in the average temperature if they could have yeah. air conditioning, probably five or 10, because it's just such a big, it's just such a huge thing to be able to control your indoor climate. It's kind of like, if you think another analogy is medication, like if there's, 50%, even like 50% more of a disease floating out there, but you know how to cure the disease or vaccinate yourself against the disease or both, like you don't care. And so that yeah. people are still thinking of climate in this primitive way. It's like, well, how many storms are there and exactly what's the intensity? But the whole thing is like, do you have the ability to produce climate protection or not? Because if you do, it would take a hell of a change. Like I, in, in the new version of Moral Case, I, I really try to think about what would be overwhelming 
And it's really hard to actually think of things that would be overwhelming. Like it would have the best I can think of are like multi foot a decade sea level rises, um, out of control, like temperature increases that just escalate and which is physically yeah. impossible. And then, um, you would have to have something like a doubling or tripling of the intensity of storms. Cause even if the storms were three or four times more frequent, that wouldn't do that much to you. So you just have to be these unprecedented storms. And then you look at what the UN says so far about as temperatures have increased, what's happened to all these things. And basically so far they can't show anything. And so you just think, what is the probability once you know that the warming can't go out of control because it's decelerating effect and you look at the history of the planet and CO2 used to be 15 times higher and temperature never like got out of control. Like it's all about like the real, the real game is the only threat is just, oh, a certain, like the change from one masterable climate to another is faster than you would like. Mm. That's, that's it. That's the only thing. Yeah. That's, then, yeah. that's another thing I, I, I meant to say, but I didn't get around to. Uh, when you asked about, you know, when we talked about standards and how we approach people who, who have very different standards, um, I've, I've started to ask, you know, when people like Greta Thunberg says that you will die of old age, but I will die of climate change, I keep asking, how is climate change going to kill you? Like, what exactly is climate going to do to kill you? You know, that kind of line of questioning, because every single thing that we can measure, right, you know, uh, um, um, uh, how many people die from storms, from floods, from natural disasters, from food supply or famines, all of those numbers are down, like massively down over, over decades and centuries, right? Like, so for climate change to kill us through those measures, they would have to first reverse that long-term trend and it'll have to, to be, to get much, much, much worse. It's like, is there, is, is there any feasible scenario where that would happen? No, of course not. You know, like we have we have the ability to protect ourselves against what the climate does. Uh, we have access to cheap, available, um, abundant energy. We we can protect ourselves. We have warning systems for for storms. Like we know about these storms coming. We can protect ourselves for days in advance. You know, we have global markets that can ship um, uh, food from one place to another. We can take advantage of uh, the fact that it, when it's winter and hostile in the northern hemisphere we can grow food in the Southern hemisphere and ship them to, to the North and vice versa. Um, you know, so what exactly, we have more, we can produce more food now than we ever could. Like what exactly is the climate going to do to kill me? You know, like it's a slightly provocative question, but it also gets to, to, the, to the basics of this question that climate change is bad. It's like, okay, climate change, all these, I, I'm happy to accept that all of these things are happening. I'm not um, a specialist. In, in the scientist, I don't tend to go down that rabbit hole um, and question the science. We're like, okay, fine enough, but what's gonna, how? Tell me how, you know? All of these things, like I write for a, for a site called Human Progress, like we, it, it, it is quite obvious that the humans, human species is much, much better off now than it was even decades ago. Yeah, and particularly in this, in this domain, which, you know, like I'll, if I wanna be provocative, I'll say like, it's not a climate crisis, it's a climate renaissance. Because never have we experienced climate as as so livable. And I, I think that question is a really good one that you raised about like how is it going to happen? And if you look at what why don't people think about it, there's at least two things. One is just the whole anti-debate nature of today's discussion, where it's just we can't debate anything. So it's like listen to the scientists 
And then this goes along with what are the scientists saying if they're saying anything? It's all just about climate changes and climate conditions that are viewed as perfect if we don't impact them and immoral if we do. But because if, mm-hmm. if you actually people had to actually explain like, okay, here's how the world, here's how a billion people are going to die. There's no mechanism. There's no plot. So one, the more we can just ask, okay, yeah, I'm just curious. Okay, I get that you say temperature is going to rise, but how is everybody? How is that going to really hurt everybody? And then you start to see, oh, they have no. Nobody has an answer. Climate science don't have an answer. And one one pet point of mine that I keep meaning to tweet is just climate scientists know nothing about adaptation. <laughs> like so, why are we asking the client? And I need a good analogy to this. Maybe you can come up with one. But it would be like if you had a doc, if you if you're consulting doctors, and people only understood, like, the organ, like the virus, the organisms. Uh, they only like understood dangerous organisms, but they didn't understand vaccination and cures. That like, of course, you need to consult the people who know how to cure the thing. So it's like, yeah, you can ask. Let's say Michael Mann. Is it all honest, which I, I, I don't think is true, but like, yeah, maybe he can tell you something about what's going to happen in temperature, but he doesn't know anything about air conditioning. And, mm. and none of these people, like somebody can tell you about, oh, this is going to happen in the atmosphere with drought or something, but they don't know anything about irrigation or drought relief or anything like that. So it's just this, the more you would ask for an explanation, the more it would be clear that, oh, there isn't one and you actually need experts in adaptation, which is really a, a lot as economists who would actually like that, that is actually the more important thing than the climate scientists. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I, I meant to mention this. I, re- I, I wrote, I read something in the Scientific American and I think they had an entire session this summer that was uh, all on climate change. Um, and I remember reading this, you know, like she was listing the author was, she's a scientist somewhere. I don't, I blank on her name. I can find it later. Um, she was listing all these things that happened, you know, extreme weather events, extreme temperatures all the way, you know, the Arctic being warmer than it ever had, all the normal talking points, right? Um, And then, you know, the heat, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, she said, worldwide, I'm quoting, worldwide, thousands of people without air conditioning died. And I'm like, hang on a second, hang on a second. You know, the solution then is not to, you know, enact carbon taxes and, you know, reduce, uh, CO2 in the atmosphere or stop flying or stop eating meat. The, the solution is to give people air conditioners, right? Like that's much easier. It's a much cheaper policy. Um, and it has much better effect. Like right away, we can target people. And it also, the, the side effect, and I think John Lomberg is really good at pointing this out. It also fixes the normal conditions of life. You know, um, Austin, Texas is very warm and humid and hot in summers, even without climate change. An air conditioner makes life better there regardless, you know? Uh, so I think that's a very good point. Uh, what was the other thing I meant to say? Yes, none of this happens instantaneously. And I think this is really good when we think about sea level rises. Um, I've been getting into, I'm, I'm very fascinated by glaciers and glaciers melting. And that's, um, you know, a topic that, you know, gets, it, it, it's very vivid and it's very easy to realize, okay, if these glaciers melt, water goes into the oceans more ocean, more water in the ocean means higher um, sea level rises. And then, you know, all our low laying um, uh, cities are, are inundated by, by water and we can't live there anymore. Um, and I keep thinking, you know, this isn't happening overnight. Like even if they hit records, which it seems to, to happen in, in many glaciers around the world and in Greenland, for instance, um, it's such a small change happening gradually. 
right? Like it's almost as if we're we're imagining this tsunami of water just like rushing into New York City and then all of a sudden everything, you know, the day after tomorrow or, you know, those sort of images of how our societies are just completely wiped out. No, they happen gradually, very, very slowly, a bit like the tide. It comes in very, very slowly. You can barely see it. Um, and then after a while, you can see that it's, that it's higher. But that's not very hard to adapt to. Like, if we have a couple of centimeters of sea level rise a year, we can probably move the houses that are closest to the sea. We can probably build things that protect against it. We can probably do like the Dutch do and tame the waters and put barriers in the way. You know, like these are not civilizational disasters. This is not a day after tomorrow that's going to kill us tomorrow. It's good, you know, it's a very gradual and slow process. And we are rich, smart, and well equipped enough to, to deal with it. Yeah, as long as we're free to use, uh, as long as we're free to produce energy. You know, that's reliable and low cost and global scale, uh, et cetera. Uh, awesome. Well, that's all I had. So let's just ask you, though, where can uh, listeners and viewers learn more about you and follow your work? So I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, and my handle is Joachim Book, the way my name is spelled, J-O-A-K-I-M-B-O-O-K, book like, like a book you would read. Um, I also gather all my published places, all my published pieces on um, a, a website called Authory. It's author and then a Y at the end. Um, again, authory.com slash book. And then you can find everything that I write across all, um, all different um, outlets. Um, awesome. Any, any final thoughts for the viewers and listeners? Uh, stay skeptical. I know people these days say stay woke, but stay skeptical. Think for yourself. Um, discover, like dive into things, you know, ask, is this a big number? Is this really that bad? What happened last year? These kinds of basic fundamental stat statistic questions that really help people understand the world. Um, yeah. All right. You heard it from you. Stay skeptical. Uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Joachim Book for joining me. Uh, I liked how toward the end we got at some, some ideas about how we can reach more people who might seem unreachable but actually have the potential to be really good champions of the right ideas. I, I do think it's some of the details about framing that I gave and my experience have been uh, very, very helpful. And another thing I've been thinking about is just that there's a certain critical mass I think you get with pro-human thinking about environmental issues because when there's just one person, it's okay, it's just one person, but then you start to see, and not that there ever was just one person, but when people start to see, oh, okay, there's Alex Epstein, there's Michael Schellenberger, there's Bjorn, Bjorn Lomborg, there's Joachim Book, there's Patrick Moore, there's Matt Ridley, there's Robert Bryce, you start to see, oh, wow, this is an approach. And just about everyone taking this approach makes a lot more sense than the people who are not taking this approach. And start to think, wow, this approach might be right. And then people learn about the general approach from one individual in that group or maybe others. And then they learn about others. And I think there's just a point at which you see, oh, wow, there are more and more people in this school of thought and at a certain point, what's going to happen is the whole monopoly 
of the moral case against fossil fuels and the whole anti-impact, ultimately anti-human way of looking at environmental issues, that's going to be challenged. And then once that, once those really match up against each other, the whole anti-impact view just doesn't make any sense and can't stand up to scrutiny. That's part of the reason why I love saying things like the debate is over. So it's got so much momentum and so many incentives that it's entrenched and whatnot, but at the same time, it's weak and the, you know, ju it just takes, it only takes so many people to really break that moral monopoly. So I'm, I'm excited to have many of the, the uh, monopoly breakers on the show. And I encourage you to check out their work and to promote it uh, as well as promoting the work that I am doing. Speaking of work that I'm doing, I want to again, stress share energy talkingpoints.com. We are headed toward the election. There's going to be, uh, you might hear this before or after the, I mean, one of those two, the final debate, which is on Thursday. I'm recording this on Tuesday. It'll go out on Wednesday. Uh, but, you know, before, during, after that debate, there's going to be a lot of energy issues, environment issues, climate issues, and energytalkingpoints.com is a great reference to, uh, to give to people. So just want to remind again, energytalkingpoints.com. Also, if you want to just keep up with what I'm saying about the election and other issues, make sure to get on my mailing list, which is alexepsteinlist.com. And if you want to support our various projects at the Center for Industrial Progress, including our research and development and our marketing, become an accelerator. You can learn more at industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. I think that is it for this week. Uh, just one more thing, actually, I, I've, been do I've been doing a lot of virtual speaking lately and in November in particular and uh, late October, I have a ton of it, but since it's, I'm, I can do it from Laguna Beach, it's easy. So if any of you have virtual events, whether you want me to do a speech, a speech plus Q and A, just a Q and A fireside chat. Um, I've also been doing strategy sessions for consulting. If you have any messaging kinds of challenges, uh, I have a decent amount of bandwidth for that. So if you have a virtual event or potential virtual event that you want to do, just contact me at alex at alexepstein.com and we'll see if we can work something out. All right, that's it for this week. Next week, I'll be back with, an, uh, with another great guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour, the antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.